welcome back to Perspectives on Transparency and Peer Review. I'm Michael Casp from J&J Editorial. Joining me uh, today uh, are my panelists, um, Tom Lang from Tom Lang Communications and Training International. Tom, thanks for joining us. You're welcome, Michael. All right. We also have Allison Leung, uh, who is the editorial manager for PLOS Pathogens and PLOS Neglected Tropical Diseases. Allison, thank you once again. Yep, thanks for having me. Uh, we also have Dr. David Resnick, uh, the bioethicist and IRB chair at the National Institute for Inventor- Environmental Health Sciences. Uh, Dr. Resnick, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. And finally, we have Dr. Pedro Ramirez uh, from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, where he's a professor and director of the Minimally Invasive Surgical Research and Education in the Department of Gynecologic Oncology. Uh, thank you for joining us, Dr. Ramir- mm, Dr. Ramirez. Thank you, Michael. All right. Now, our final topic that we're going to be addressing for this peer review week is sort of the big question that I want to get at, and I think a lot of people are trying to get at right now, and, and that is, does transparent peer review address some of the limitations in traditional peer review? Uh, limitations like bias and peer reviewer credit, uh, potential lack of confidence in the traditional system, et cetera. And I think we've touched on a lot of these topics, but I kind of want to go directly at them in this segment. So I'm going to start off uh, with this question. We'll start with um, Allison. I think I know what your answer is going to be, but do we really need open and or transparent peer review? Well, I think it's kind of important to distinguish the difference between like open peer review and transparent peer review. Transparent peer review, we absolutely need. I think all journals should have a transparent peer review system where the authors can trust in the decisions that are being made and the readers can trust in the rigor of the peer review process being done. Um, When it comes to open review, where we have the reviews that are being published alongside the article, whether they're signed or not signed, I think that's that's another question entirely. Um, Need is maybe a strong word. I think that there is definitely a a groundswell right now um, for people who want this. I think open peer review can address some of the limitations of traditional peer review um, where you're not seeing the reviews, things like bias or peer reviewers not getting credit for the work that they're doing, um, maybe can help illuminate some of the rigorous discussions that happen behind the scenes. Um, But I, I think it's still, there's a lot of, it's an open question. I think that there is a lot of differing opinions on it. I strongly believe in transparent peer review. I think open peer review is an interesting model that is definitely worth exploring um, and interesting because it does address some of those limitations. Great. Let's toss this over to Tom. Tom, what do you think? Is there a need for for more transparency in peer review? And if you want to address open peer review as well, I'd love to hear it. I think Allison nailed it. I think you have to distinguish between uh, a transparent process in general, uh, and there seems to be wide agreement that that's okay. Open peer review in the sense of publishing reviews signed by the reviewer, I do think we ought to explore it. It's being explored. It does not appear to be uh, the silver bullet that uh, removes bias. It seems to introduce other biases. But like Allison, I think that we need to explore it and 
see what we can do to improve it. I mean, the whole history of of science is getting tripped up with error, confounding, and bias, and then designing a new research mechanism that will prevent that. And that's where we are in uh, in this whole peer review thing. I, I do think one thing that has not been addressed is how good of agreement can we expect to get? Um, in the evidence-based medicine movement, the Cochrane reviews are considered to be the, the best of the best, as it were. But 30% of Cochrane reviews have errors in them. And so <laughs> the question is, how good can this system ever be, given that it's a system based on judgments and with lots of, I think Pedro mentioned, you know, lots of, of biases, both uh, known and unknown. I think that's a great uh, point. Um, yeah, and uh, that even if it is transparent, you may still be seeing uh, something that isn't quite the truth. Um, so, Dr. Resnick, I, I kind of want to get your perspective on, on uh, Tom's point and also just y your perspective in general about the need for openness and, and or transparency in peer review. Well, I, I agree with everything that's been said, the importance of distinguishing between transparent review versus uh, completely open review where it, reviewers would sign their reviews and all that. I think, I think one thing that really to keep in mind is that, you know, peer review is done by human beings and uh, people are imperfect and they're, they make mistakes and they're biased and, um, we can try to improve it as much as we can, but um, you know, it's. I think it's thing that we have to live with. That it's is you know, try as we might, there's going to be limitations inherent in the process because it is done by people. And do you feel like transparency helps that situation at least incrementally? I mean, if if people are able to see what's going on, do you feel like that'll that'll I guess, keep people more on their toes and, and, and trying harder to, to be the best that they can? I think it helps. I think there's a lot of other things we can do that help beyond that. Like what? Um, that we really talked about today. Um, one thing I think is really important is education. I think, I think during the scientists' education, they should be educated on how to do peer review properly and that their mentors should work with them on that and, and they should, you know, show them how to do it responsibly and everything. I think that's just really a key part of the whole process we haven't even really talked about today. Well, I completely agree. I mean, just working in, in journals myself, it, it, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty surprising that how important reviewing is that we get so many people who who come to these journals and have never done it don't really have a great concept on how to do it um so i mean uh, is there a, a way that that anyone can think of that that we can increase this sort of education uh, in reviewing and, and and what that might look like um yeah go ahead yeah there are lots of initiatives out there the the technology is known. Uh, they've not been very successful in attracting people to do the programs and the results have not been horribly encouraging. But uh, the problem is that it takes time, training, and perspective to, to do a good peer review. And it's a voluntary process. So 
the rewards are not uh, commensurate with the, the responsibility. Yeah, that uh, that certainly seems to be the case, um, Doctor Ramirez. What do you think? You you're out there training young researchers. Do you um, touch on peer review as part of training, or encourage your your, your folks to uh, to review? Sure. So that's actually something that um, that I think that had not been brought up uh, previously. And as, as I uh, you know, as I listen to the uh, responses, I completely agree with what has been said. I think that um, the transparency, everyone would agree that, that obviously we would be in favor of that open review. I think that I, I would have uh, less optimism in the likelihood of this being uh, something that will be successful. And I think that it goes back to the responsibility of the editors of the journals. Uh, in selecting, being very selective as to who sits on their editorial board and therefore who is also a, a reviewer for their journal. Um, and there are mechanisms that many journals will have that, that look at the grading of the quality of the, of the reviewer and it may be a, a rotating position if their grading does not meet a, a certain level. Um, because again, I think that it, it, it really uh, provides for the authenticity, the, the value, uh, the profile of that journal, uh, what is, um, how, how those uh, manuscripts are being built and by whom. Um, I think the, the other issue is the issue of the fact that, you know, as, as was mentioned, I think Tom was mentioning is that this is a voluntary uh, responsibility and often, particularly, you know, if well, who are the thought leaders in the field? It's, it's going to be very limited. So often, the thought fields in the and the thought leaders in the field are reviewers for 25 journals, and uh, and the quality of the uh, of the review may not be optimal. That they're just overwhelmed with reviews that they have to submit to the different journals, and therefore now we're seeing something where uh, whether transparent or not where reviewers are actually delegating the, the task of reviewing to a trainee or, or, a, or a junior fellow. And, the, and some journals actually do ask you, has this review been done by somebody other than you? And, than you, and uh, who might that person be? So where that fails is that, well, you know, you have a, a, a fellow very active on your service and you like the fellow and you know they, they seem to perform well and you say well I'm sure they can review this article that uh, obviously uh, that's not appropriate uh, but it's happened and that and that will be somewhat okay if that person took the time to mentor that individual as to how to how to evaluate a manuscript and to absolutely sign off on the on the review before submitting that but it's just something that is happening um, training, certainly there's no formal training in it. And also at the same time, trainees are so overwhelmed with the amount of work that they have to do that it's very unlikely the trainee will come to our office and say, teach me how to review a manuscript uh, when they can't even keep up with, uh, with the work that they need to, to do clinically or, or research-wise. So I think it's a, it's a big challenge. I think it's a, it's a great opportunity for mentors and, and uh, and, and when you do it, it's incredibly rewarding to see somebody 
uh, go from a novice in reviewing a manuscript to, to really being very thorough uh, and looking at all the aspects of the manuscript. But is it being done formally? No. And is it being done routinely? No. Do you feel like transparency could potentially, at least in part, address that a little bit if, if, if trainees and, and, and readers of research could read other reviews? Do you, do you think that might help them um, in, in crafting their own reviews, Dr. Ramirez? Yes, I think. I mean, certainly when um, when uh, when I'm I'm uh, um, going over the process of uh, of reviewing a manuscript with uh, with a trainee, I often will draw on the uh, on the uh, comments that I've made on previous manuscripts that have been published, so that they can see um, what we were thinking and, and, and what was the process for for uh, evaluating that, that manuscript. So I think it would be very, very helpful to them. It's very helpful. Obviously, you, you see the transition from the point where they give you two lines to the point where they give you a full page of, of evaluating a, a manuscript. Great. Um, so, yeah, I want to put a, another question out to you all, and that is um, basically how much transparency do we want, in, in your opinion at this point, I think? Uh, how much transparency do you feel is the appropriate amount that sort of balances, um, you know, some of the, uh, the issues we, we've been talking about. Um, so I'll start with, um, Allison. I'm curious, um, sort of what your ideal transparency situation might look like. Um, I think that there's sort of a gradient when it comes to it. I, there are some things that we absolutely have to know upfront all the time like you have to have people declaring their conflicting interests um you need to have authors declaring their funding their conflicting interests their financial disclosures you need editors to be doing that too um, you need to have i mean for plus we need to have the data be available and that's like a level of transparency as well um, we have the authors list out what they've done specifically on the paper so that they get the appropriate credit for the work that they've done um, and so that's like to me the foundation of what kind of transparency you should have. Um, there are additional things too, like you could have the time that it takes a paper to go through review, plus publishes it, that as well. And I think that can be really useful for authors to have. Um, beyond that, I don't know if it's how much do we need. I think that it's, like I said before, it's an interesting question to explore so how it can change the peer review process if you had suddenly like the editorial con uh, correspondence is published or you have the reviews published or you have the review signed. Um, I think that's, it's an open question that I think is worth asking and worth exploring. Um, I don't, for me personally, I'm interested in it because I like innovation and I like kind of that experimentalness. Um, but I think as a foundation, you need to have some certain things all the time. Great. I think that's a great perspective. And, and, and Dr. Resnick, I want to put this to you next. Um, in an ideal world, in, in your opinion, um, how much transparency do we want? What kinds of transparency do you think are, are the most important? Well, in an ideal world, um, we would not only describe the process itself, but I think we would we would actually get at those uh, subconscious biases that we uh, talked about in our earlier segments. I think somehow that needs to be made transparent because 
Ultimately, I think the goal of transparency is to is to reveal to the readers, the public, everyone, that there's some kind of rational process at work here where we have arguments and uh, evidence and uh, conclusions supported by certain things so they can see into the entire process, including all the assumptions behind uh, different arguments that are made. And so that means, from my point of view, if we're just talking about an ideal world, we would really have to try to get at the biases too. Yeah, I think uh, that's going to take a while unless we can train computers to... Uh to think and read, um, in which case we might actually have a chance at that. Um, so I want to put this now to uh, Tom. Um, what do you think of uh, uh, sort of an ideal um, transparency uh, process might look like, um, setting aside the fact that people will be biased? So let's let's, let's accept that, that that is still a part of this, but... but um, with humans being humans, how, how, how transparent do you feel like the peer review process should be? Well, again, I go back to my thought that the, the literature and our discussions in the executive board of Whammy and CSE and so forth, that the, the process being transparent in the sense of this is what happens, there doesn't appear to be much disagreement about that. I would agree completely with Allison that that's kind of a done deal. The, the major issue is in open peer review. Do you publish the review with the article and is the reviewer's identity um, given at that point? Um, I think the jury is still out. Uh, like everything else, it solves some problems, but it opens up new ones. I was asked to edit or to review an article um, this, this morning, actually for a journal that that does open review, I would be required to sign it. Uh, but I was picked as a reviewer because the authors recommended that I be the one that they re that review the article. So there's this little circular mechanism here, which I think is has some bias in this case. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I think the, the larger issue, as I've mentioned, is I'm not sure we know how to spot bias. We have articles that get published and get lots of attention that don't lead to anything, and we get other articles that, that do lead to things. Um, in my own study of statistical flaws in the literature, when I reviewed more than 350 of these studies over several decades, um, none of them had very good results, but they weren't done in the, the Antarctic Community Bulletin, Community Medical Society Bulletin. These are the errors were found in Lancet and New England and Chest, you know, the major general medical journals and specialty journals. So I'm not sure we know what good is uh, because we've got good journals publishing articles with lots of problems, and we've got now some evidence, which will be presented at the Peer Review Congress, I believe, of predatory journals publishing articles that are being cited and are generally considered to be... Uh, high quality. So I, I'm not sure what a good system would look like, but I think we need to explore open review, and um, that's being done. It's just a matter of... Now, I, I should also add, it also appears to be discipline-specific. In mathematics, for example, the peer review process can take a long time, but the end result is oftentimes, yes, the math works out. 
um, as opposed to the much more nuanced, what are the implications of this medical treatment, uh, where there are, you know, there's, you know, values and, and uncertainties and so forth. So, um, it, it's a fluid situation. I don't know that uh, that I can imagine an ideal yet. Well, that's all right. That's why we're here talking, because I can't either. So I'm really happy to get all these perspectives. And, and finally, I want to want to hear from uh, Dr. Ramirez, um, who is you know making these sorts of decisions uh, for the journal he's about to take on. Jo- Dr. Ramirez, um, how much transparency are you looking for um, in your publication? I mean, I think that, uh, again, I, I would... Um argue that the basis and the direction where we should go is more into the training and education of those who are going to be taking part in the review process and uh, placing a significant amount of responsibility on them and the editorial board of the journals. Um, I really don't see open access, uh, I mean open reviews uh, working in any way possible in favor of anyone. Um, but I, uh, I think that it should be an emphasis more so, again, on, on making sure that you have good reviewers, reviewers that know how to review a manuscript well, and then have the responsibility as the editor in a journal to make sure that you are, are um, obviously uh, funneling those manuscripts to the most unbiased uh, uh, reviewers for that particular topic. But uh, open open reviews, I, I don't see how it could it could work in any way um, that would potentially benefit science or the uh, or the public or the journals. I think that's a really uh, fascinating perspective. In that, you know, maybe maybe transparency isn't isn't the end all be all. I mean, it, it seems like it would definitely help in, in certain respects. But but ultimately, I think a lot of you are, are, are sort of saying the same thing that a, a, a lot of benefit could could really be had by better education and better training um, from the people doing the reviews. So maybe that'll be the theme for next year's peer review week is uh, education and training. Um, but I think that's all the time we have. So I want to thank you all uh, once again uh, for joining me today. Um, uh, want to uh, uh, just hope everybody enjoyed Peer Review Week and, and our podcast series here. Um, so you can find the entire series at jjeditorial.com slash news. Uh, I want to thank my guests for their time and thoughts. Uh, my guest, Tom Lang from Tom Lang Communications and Training International. Tom, thanks a lot for being here. Is there anything you'd like to promote or any final thoughts you might have? Uh, no, thank you for the opportunity to contribute. And I think it's an important topic. Um, if you are... Uh, from a journal, uh, I think there are resources at WAMI and CSE uh, and EASE uh, in Europe that um, would give you more information on this topic. It's clearly in the literature and in people's minds, and uh, and we need to explore it. Great. Thanks, Tom. And I'd also like to thank Allison Leung from the Public Library of Science for joining us. Allison, anything you'd like to promote or any final thoughts? Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a really interesting discussion. I can't wait to hear more about it. Um, if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at PLOSNTDs and then at PLOSPathogens are my two Twitter accounts. 
Great. Thanks so much, Allison. Um, we have uh, Dr. David Resnick uh, from the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. Uh, Dr. Resnick, any final thoughts or anything you'd like to promote? No, this has all been very uh, informative for me. I've, I've learned a lot just from our discussions. It's given me some more things to think about. So I, I look forward to these uh, conversations continuing. Me as well. Thank you, Dr. Resnick. And, and Dr. Pedro Ramirez from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Uh, anything you'd like to promote, Dr. Uh, Ramirez, or any final thoughts? To, uh, thank you, Michael, and thank the rest of the panelists. I learned uh, a great deal from all of you, and I, I look forward to further discussions. Wonderful. Thank you all so much. Uh, and remember uh, to visit peerreviewweek.wordpress.com and follow the hashtag peerrevwk17 uh, for all your Peer Review Week needs. And so for Tom Lang, Allison Leung, Dr. David Resnick, and Dr. Pedro Ramirez. I'm Michael Casp, and we'll see you next time. All right. Thank you, everybody. That was great.